0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Thames Valley Court and Crime Podcast.
1: We've got more extraordinary court and crime stories from across Berkshire, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire again for you this week. This time we'll be hearing from Tom about the truly
2: awful lives of young, vulnerable county drug runners, an update on the outcomes of two murder trials in Reading and a story about a man who threatened to blow up his ex-girlfriend's car in Bucks.
0: You can find more details on all the stories we're talking about on the Oxford Mail, Bucks Free Press, Reading Chronicle, Bracknell News or the Slough Observer.
1: So let's get reacquainted again. I'm Ollie, I'm the court and crime reporter for the Berkshire Newsquest title, so that's the Reading Chronicle, Battle News and the South Observer.
0: I'm Tom Seward, I'm on the Oxford now.
1: And I'm George Roberts, I'm the crime and court
2: reporter for the Buxby Press. So, this week's big topic comes from a trial at Oxford Crown Court Tom covered. Tom, can you tell us what this one was about?
0: I've been doing this job for a few years and I, I can honestly say this was one of the kind of most depressing and also most interesting afternoons I've ever spent in a, in a Crown Court. It concerned a um, very vulnerable teenage boy, he was 17 at the time, um, just 19 when he was in Oxford Crown Court earlier in, in November. He looked like a schoolboy, not helped by the fact that he was probably still wearing his school shirt, white white school shirt, buttoned up to the neck. Now, the charges were possession with intent to supply heroin and crack cocaine. In the Crown's case, that he was a drugs runner sent from Watford in North London um, over to Oxfordshire to, to deal drugs on behalf of a, of a county lines gang. Now, these county lines gangs, they're city-based gangs who um, deal drugs in um, out-of-town uh, town, towns, and cities, smaller towns and cities like Oxford, like um, Bicester, which is where this this offence occurred, and the the police went through the doors of a flat um, in late 2020 and found him and another young man in that house. The house had been cuckooed; it was the home of a vulnerable drug addict, and found on the bathroom floor were wraps, cling film wraps. Um, covered in excrement um, the boy was taken to hospital he was x-rayed and he was found to have plugged a huge quantity of, of class A drugs in his bottom he eventually passed that whilst he was in custody um, in, a, in a police custody suite after a custody sergeant gave him a fairly stern talking to about the, the, just the sheer danger of what might happen if this thing exploded inside him Now, it was a a really unusual defence that he was running. He was running a slavery defence. He was essentially saying that he was a a modern-day slave who'd been trafficked from London to Bicester, ordered to sell drugs, and he had absolutely no control over what he was doing. And as this court case unfolded, as he was giving evidence, we descended into this labyrinthine world of just sheer terror that these drug runners are forced to go through. And it started off, with a £300 drug debt. This boy, he was a cannabis user, he'd had a torrid upbringing, he'd been beaten by his father in front of other people, in fact. His father father went to court for it and he was suffering from PTSD and he smoked cannabis to help him get to sleep. Now, he usually bought £30 worth at a time, that was how much he smoked a day. But this drug dealer, who was named in court only as N, the, the initial M, a bit James Bond-like, offered him the chance to get £300 worth of cannabis on tick, as it's called, so so on credit. And like a fool, he took it. He was only 17 years old. He had a job. He was working as a landscaper for a group of people he described in court as travellers. No problem, he thought. I'm working by the end of the week, at the time that I need to get this money back. I'll have, I've got, got the money in my pocket. I'll be able to pay them back. Friday came, turned up for work. His bosses had just completely disappeared. They'd scarpered, they'd most. That left him with a, a significant problem, as you can probably imagine. He had a £300 drug debt, and he had no money to pay it. Now, he called up M, and M said, he appeared cool at first. He said, no, it's no problem. Just, just pay me back when you can, but just be aware. It's um, £100 interest a day. Oh, and by the way, I know where you live, because I've watched you go into your address unlock your door when I gave you the £300 worth of cannabis. And he, the boy, he, he admitted in court, he admitted he was naive, he thought he'd be able to get the money, he didn't tell anyone. And the next week, he doesn't have the cash, he calls up Em again, he gets another call, and then this time, there's a lot, lot cross he Accuses him of taking the piss. And he says, I'm going to meet you, I'm going to come to your house. The boy is terrified by this point. He thinks, I don't want my mum involved. That's the one thing, that's the one constant. He doesn't want his mum to know what he's done. So he agrees to meet M outside his house at the end of his road. M turns up in his in his black Audi and the boy is pushed up against the car and he's forced inside and M, is, M and his stooges who are in the car are issuing him with threats. The black Audi is driven to a sink estate in Watford and the boy is taken into a, a stinking flat that belongs to a... a a drug addict. There are needles littering the floor. This place smells awful. And from nowhere, M produces a pistol and holds it to the boy's head. And he pistol whips him, essentially. And these threats are followed by a demand. The demand that the M produces, a a small cling film pack um, of of cling film rats, pack of, of drugs. And he says, you are going to plug this. And his barrister stopped the case at this point And he said, she said, do you know what plugging is? Can you describe it to us? And the boy knew a little bit about what plugging is. And for those who don't know, I don't know if you've come across it, um, you see, it's where people will insert um, packages of drugs into their bottom. They might swallow them or they might um, uh, insert them as one might as suppository. It's incredibly dangerous because these drugs can just burst inside you. This is a boy who's 17 years old. If that had been another object and in a different context, M, the drug dealer, would be being dealt with for sex crimes. So reluctantly, because he's got really no choice, he plugs the drugs. It's uncomfortable, he, he says, and he's driven to Bicester. Now this is in summer 2020. It goes on for weeks. This first, first phase, the first act of, of this tragedy, this play. Finally, it ends. Police raid this flat and the boy is nervous, terrified, but he sees it almost as the chance that he's been looking for to get away. And for a, for a while he does. M calls him up and says, look, you're too hot to handle. The police are all over you. And I think this is, this is where we come to probably one of the first failings in the case. And there are many failings in this case the first failing of the authorities. Now, the police have a duty to report him to the Home Office as a potential victim of modern slavery because he's only 17. He's from Watford. He's in Bicester, which is how many? Two counties away from where he normally lives. And he's, And he's in possession of hundreds of pounds worth of drugs. So he gets a call from social services. The social worker says, look, I want to meet you to talk about what you've been through, but because of COVID, we can't meet indoors. Ridiculous, in my view. This is a vulnerable boy. And she says, look, we'll meet outside, and she gives him a couple of options. We can meet in a park, we can meet outside the library. None of those are appealing to a 17-year-old who's in fear of serious drug dealers. Who knows what will happen to him and his family if he's caught talking to somebody in the authorities? so he politely declines to attend the, the session. Now, from his evidence, no idea backing this up, there was no evidence from the social worker, but at that point, it just ends. His interaction with the authorities just ends. There's no follow-up. There's no There's no call. There's no visit to the mother. He's just left in the to the mercy of the wolves. And the wolves come back and pulls up alongside him in an Audi, winds down the window and says, we've got talking to do. And he goes, he's not sure what to do. He's less naive this time. One of the stooges gets out of the car, comes behind him, and the boy thinks he's been punched in the shoulder. It's only when he sees the, the down feathers from his jacket fly into the air that he realizes he he's been stabbed in the shoulder. Doesn't go to hospital. M pours some aftershave on it and tells him, you don't need to go to hospital. And so the nightmare begins again, and he goes back to Bister, he's forced to plug these drugs. He'll get a, a call from M saying to expect addicts at the door. He's made to unplug these drugs that are in his rectum peel off a couple of wraps and hand them to the drug addict each time it's excruciatingly painful and he's a slave he doesn't really get paid he's got this nominal drugs debt that he's got to pay off that keeps on going up because of the initial interest when he wasn't paying the cannabis debt off and then every time he loses drugs or cash or his the runners who he's with get arrested and they lose drugs or cash this drug debt goes up and M buys them one pizza a day. That's all he has to eat. And he's in limbo. He's not eating very well. He's in a flat that's completely surrounded by heroin fumes and crack cocaine fumes. He's pasty-faced. And this ordeal finally ends when police raid the, raid the, uh, the drugs flat that he was in, in Bister, and following that, this audio ends and the, and the court case begins. And there's this extraordinary scene in this court case at the end. So he's been running a modern slavery defence. He's been saying he's a slave. And the jury is presented with a picture of his back that has this nasty red scar across it. And we don't see his face in the picture. It's a, a picture that's screenshotted from Snapchat. And the prosecutor goes, are you the man in that picture? And he says... Yes. Do you want to see? And the prosecutor pauses, thinks for a moment, strokes his chin and says, yeah, go on then. And I don't know if you've ever seen the trials of O.J. Simpson or or read about that case, but you'll remember in that case, O.J. Simpson is made made to try on a glove. And if the glove fits, he's guilty. If it doesn't, he's not. And this boy takes off a school shirt, this white school shirt that I'm sure he probably was still wearing when he was 15. And he parades in front of the jury and has this scar, this white scar across his back. Prosecutor asks for five minutes, comes back five minutes later and he says, I'm never going to get a conviction. He essentially acknowledges that this boy was a slave. And so the prosecution offered no evidence. And the look in this boy's mother's face and she's sitting in the public gallery As her son is acquitted, as um, essentially the criminal justice system recognised that this boy was not a drug dealer, or he was, but he was a very vulnerable young boy as well, is something I'll probably not forget. And it's um, I've seen everything. I've seen murder, I've seen the worst rapes imaginable, torture, child abuse cases, but I'll probably not forget this one.
1: It sounds like... The details of the case were really quite horrible, but it also sounds like there was a lot of uh, a sense of elation at the, at the resulting decision from the prosecution not to, to continue with the case.
0: Absolutely. And I think the, the, the important thing to remember is that this, this is happening everywhere. County Lines is is not a problem that's confined to Oxfordshire. It's happening in High Wycombe, God, it's happening in Reading in spades. And people, whether they're listening to this in their home, on the way into work, or just on a walk, they will have probably come past somebody who is dealing drugs in these circumstances. They will probably unwittingly have walked past somebody who is a slave. And we tend to think of slaves, modern day slaves, as people who work in car washes or um, you know people who are who are forced to. S- sell their bodies for sex. But actually, this can happen to anyone. I mean, he had blonde hair, he was a white boy, he came from a difficult troubled childhood, but his mother was a decent person. You know, his extended family, they were decent people. And But for one mistake, he has fallen into a huge pit which he was only able to get out of
2: thanks to a prosecutor who saw sense. Did the boy kind of go into the details about sort of the emotional like toll that this was taking on him, you know? How how did it kind of affect him?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point and I, I think that was possibly the saddest point of all. He just looked really broken. It was every day, you know, he was he was retelling these details as if it was work. It would be a bit like you or I telling, you know, a friend down the pub about what, what you were doing um, earlier in the week at, at, at work. It just wore, it, it wore him down. And because he was only 17, he'd had a landscaping job, but he, he kind of knew, knew, knew no different. This was a daily terror um, and it, his daily reality.
1: I noticed in, in your article, Tom, uh, you've not named the victim. Uh, obviously we've given a few small descriptions that he had blonde hair and he was a, a white white boy. But um, can you just explain why we've chosen not to name him?
0: Yeah, there was no, no restrictions, anonymity restrictions on the case, but I had a long chat with my editor about it and I think we both felt that it was probably in the, in the public interest not, not to name him. He was terrified of repercussions. Um, probably rightly so, and, and or understandably so, I should say. Um, and I think anybody who was in that case, and hopefully anybody who's read that article, can see that this is not a bad lad. He's just made some mistakes, um, and he is incredibly vulnerable. And so that that was the reason for for not not naming him. It doesn't. There wasn't a reporting restriction on on it, but we. Um, we just took that decision
1: was the, did, did, did the court hear at all if uh, there's a happy ending for the boy is he did the court hear if he's if he's getting on better now has he got some some prospects coming his way?
0: Yeah I, I think so in that brief um, golden period between between these two two kind of periods when he was made to work drugs he was, was doing plumbing with his uncle and he seemed to be doing really well things were looking up for him. I mean he's a bright boy and um, for sure I'm sure he'll go very very far um, nobody will see him again in a call
2: um, Tom you <clears throat> you mentioned that the, that this all came to an end when the police kind of raided the, the, the house where he was he was stowed away and you know initially arrested him before they really knew what was going on I mean did you hear at all kind of what, what you know how the police found out about it and also do we know anything more about M you know is he still at large
0: yeah, two really good questions. Um, the answer to the first is no. We didn't really hear a huge amount more detail about um, how the police came to know about those those flats. I mean, it's it's probably community intelligence. There was no evidence before the court about um, it being part of a wider conspiracy, for example. So it, was, it wasn't as if the um, uh, the police seemed to be, you know, involved in some sort of widespread. Um, intelligence operation against the the line that the boy was running for. Um, the second question about who who is M? Uh, very good question. Boy, for obvious reasons, didn't name him. Uh, he claimed that he didn't know the name um, and knew him only uh, by the initial M. God knows, but I think the one thing that we can probably be sure of is that he's still likely to be out there and, and doing this to other young men. Um. So, a, fi- a final reflection on this case. The um, I was having a chat with a copper the other day about county lines and um, and trafficking. And for interest to nerds like us, the the reporting restrictions in place for victims of modern day slavery are the same um, as those who. Um, who have been the victim of sexual offences, like um, victims of paedophiles, for example. So if somebody is proved to be a victim of modern slavery um, and they're the, the, the victim in a charge um, of trafficking, then they have lifelong anonymity, which prevents you from identifying them in any way, shape, or form. And I asked, I was chatting to this coffer, and we were saying, t- talking about this point um, and how unacceptable it is to use children to do your dirty work. It's been happening for centuries, millennia I'm sure, older criminals using children to um, to commit crime. But if you're, if you're forcing a child to plug drugs and driving them hundreds of miles across the country, part of me feels like you're no better than a paedophile. And I think it's important that the public recognize that. And there is a reason in my mind, why the anonymity provisions are the same for victims of modern slavery as they are for victims of of predatory paedophiles. It's not acceptable. These people, they swagger around. They swagger around in prison as they swagger around in the community. If the public, if society started seeing them for what they are, which is essentially no better than paedophiles, in my my mind, I think lots of this would, would stop a lot quicker personal view. Unpopular perhaps, but there we
1: go. Uh, We're now moving into the next bit of the podcast, uh, where we uh, typically reflect on some of the stories we've been working on in the courts recently. Um, We're doing it a little bit differently this week, whereas where I'm just going to be talking about the uh, outcomes of the two murder trials I've been covering at Reading Crown Court. Uh, so we had a verdict in the first one uh, come through at the start of last week, uh, which was the last week of November. Um, Anil Joseph, uh, who is 28 and from Caversham in Reading, uh, was convicted of the murder of uh, Yannick Capido, who he stabbed in Caversham, on Valentine's Day earlier this year, the jury found him guilty of murder, he'd already admitted to possession of a bladed article. Um, along with this, his accomplice, um, Rhys Weatherburn, who was a mutual friend of both Yannick Capido and, and Anil Joseph, uh, he was convicted of assisting an offender. Um, both, both defendants got their sentence the very next morning. Um, Anil Joseph was, was handed a life sentence uh, with a minimum term of 24 years in prison and Reese Wilburne was handed a three-year prison sentence. Uh, he will serve half of this before being eligible for release. Uh, at the sentencing, uh, His Honour Judge Nawaz said that a text exchange between Capito and Joseph had ramped up tensions between them. Uh, they already didn't like each other. Uh, and they arranged to meet in Caversham in the early hours of Valentine's Day earlier this year. Uh, Judge Noir said, neither of them was willing to back down. This was all a face-saving exercise. Joseph had been made to look foolish and he was not going to stand for that. This was the catalyst for what was to follow. So another terrible incident uh, involving knife crime in Reading um, and that's the conclusion of of that one. But um, I'm sure the effects of that will be felt by everybody who knew Yannick for a long time to come. Um, The second uh, verdict we got also last week was uh, a verdict in the murder trial uh, of two parents um, who were accused of causing or allowing the death of their one month old son, Colby Lawton. So James Lawton, who is 28 from Wiltshire, uh, was accused of, of murder of, uh, of his infant son, and Chantelle Stroud, who was Colby's mother, was accused of allowing uh, the death of Colby because she let James stay at their house and, and she supposedly knew the risk uh, posed by James. However, Chantel Stroud was, was, was cleared of, of the charges against her and uh, the jury found her not guilty of wrongdoing uh, and she was free to go. However. James Lawson was convicted of murder and one count of grievous bodily harm. Um, He was also sentenced uh, on the same day as the conviction. Uh, Sentencing, Mrs Justice Stacey said, uh, she accepted that James might not have intended to kill Colby. Uh, She said he was a man who acted spontaneously, but he did intend to cause him serious bodily harm. He, she said his decision to shake Colby, as the prosecution alleged, is what happened, uh, was one that was a spur of, spur of the moment decision. Uh, she also added that um, although James, who denied the accusations against him, could not accept what happened to Colby, what what he did to Colby, she said he she she said he had no doubt. Excuse me. She said she had no doubt that he had unarticulated remorse for his death. So in the sentencing, uh, James Lawton was handed a life sentence and was told he will serve a minimum of 17 years behind bars. We've also got one more murder trial running through Reading Crown Court at the moment. That one's uh, nearing its conclusion. Uh, that involves four men charged with the murder of Raheem Hanif who was fatally stabbed in Tilehurst uh, in February this year. If you keep up to date with that one on the Reading Chronicle, we'll bring you updates when we get them.
2: Um, Ollie, just going back to the first, the first one. Um, yeah, question on on that. You you sat in on, on, on the trial or most of the trial, and kind of from what you've you've described, it sound sounded fairly open and shut. Was that the impression that you got from the evidence that you know that that, that Joseph was was guilty?
1: I think we've seen this year with cases where there's been a stabbing and the accused has brought a knife with them to the incident. Uh there's tends to be more often than not one one way the verdict goes. Uh, we we saw it with the Ollie Stevens trial where uh two boys both both 14 years old were convicted of murder after they brought a knife to a pre-arranged ambush of Ollie in Caversham in Reading earlier this year. Uh, they were both handed uh, lengthy sentences at their at their sentencings. Um, and it's the, it's the same here, where only old Joseph purposely left the house with a, a kitchen knife um, before meeting Yannick Capide. He claimed this was a matter of self defence. You know, he he was uh, pleading in court. Um, that Yannick Capito had a reputation for being in gangs that was what was alleged uh, and, and the reason he brought the knife was to protect himself but um, it was it was obviously Anil Joseph who 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 landed the fatal blow and uh, he was the jury um, unanimously convicted him of, of murder um, after I think if I remember rightly nine hours of deliberations
2: well yeah, not, not long deliberating then considering it was quite a lengthy trial
1: yeah I think it well with I think at the start of the trial, it was delayed for about two weeks because uh, coronavirus got in the way of it. But um, yeah, I think it lasted for about four weeks in the end. So uh, yeah, not not too long deliberation deliberating for the jury, considering uh, how long the trial went on for.
0: And Ollie, tell us about the um, atmosphere in the in the courtroom when Lawton was sentenced. What happened?
1: Yeah, he was um, he was not happy, as you can imagine. Um, both Stroud and Lawson were in the dock when the uh, verdicts were read um, Lawton was Lawson heard his verdicts first and, and count one murder he was he was found guilty and he, he uh you could see him kind of shuffling about he wasn 't comfortable and and he was you could hear him like even though I was a good maybe twenty meters away from him you could hear him um you know uh, moaning and and gesturing and, and uh, general displeasure in, in, his, uh, in his in his in his demeanour, um, and and when he was sent down, he slammed the door behind him. Um, and during during the sentencing, he he appeared fairly emotionless. But um, at the verdict, he was he was um, under you know understandably uh, angry and and annoyed. Um, Chantel Stroud, after hearing she had been cleared of any wrongdoing, uh, was was as you'd expect. Uh, she looked full of relief. She was she was crying she had her hands cupped over her over her mouth in it looks like a pure kind of um, relief and elation that she'd uh, been been cleared and um, that's that's what you'd expect really after a, a grueling three or four weeks in in the in the dock during the trial
2: right so moving on to the final part of the podcast um, Looking at a slightly more unusual story um, this week about a man who threatened to blow up his ex-girlfriend's car. Um, this took place in Chesham. The defendant, a guy called Sajid Mahmud, essentially got into an argument with his his former kind of partner, been together, you know, over over a decade ago, and, and and this all happened in December 2020. And essentially, they kind of got into a to an argument over the phone and. Saw, was, was shouting at each other, and well, I think this guy, Mr Manood, was, was, was shouting at the victim, um, Charlie Johnson, and it kind of things escalated to the, to the point where he threatened to, to blow up her car and also the car of her um, of her current partner, a guy called Hamid Aslam. So this was a trial that took place at Wickham Magistrate's Court uh, a couple of weeks ago. And basically, this guy Sajid Mahmood, he's thirty eight, he's from um, from Chesham. He was found guilty of of threatening to the to destroy property, the kind of thing that makes this case. Well, I mean, on on its own merit, it's it's a little bit peculiar. But the fact that 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 made it even more strange was Miss Johnson sort of appeared in court to to give evidence uh, about what was going on, and she sort of described how. You know, they 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 come to a. This, they were having an argument over the phone, and you know, this this guy started shouting at her. And then she said, "I was really concerned because he's blown up my car before, um, which is you know doesn't really happen every day." But basically, what what the court sort of heard was that Miss Johnson's car had been blown up in the past, um, and it had never really. The police had never had never charged anyone. They'd never gotten to the bottom of it. Miss Johnson said that she suspected Mr. Mahmood blew it up himself but there was never any evidence to, to prove that and he he had an alibi um but it it, it seemed a, a real coincidence that um you know having had her car blown up in the past um this this man was now making threats to to blow up her car um and yeah no cars were were blown up in you know in this situation but it was a particularly strange Strange kind of threat to make, um, and then we also heard from from Mr. Aslam, who he's sort of the the, the current partner of Mr. Johnson. They've been together for for several years, and he he also kind of spoke to to Mr. Mahmood on the phone. He said he was just trying to you know just trying to calm things down and you know kind of get to the bottom of what was going on. And Mr. Mahmood threatened to blow up his car as well, which you know it seems like a kind of, kind of peculiar kind of baseline threat to to make to people. He also. He, Mr Mahmood also threatened to send mans uh, around to, to their house uh, in Chesham to sort of to do them in and to, to beat up their family and, and things like this. So, yeah, it seemed like a, a kind of a slightly unpleasant character. Um, kind of Mr Mahmood eventually took to the stand and, and sort of gave his side of the story. And he sort of said, no, you know, I never made these threats that, you know, if anything, I'm, I'm the victim here that they're ganging up on me because there's because there's bad blood between us but so sort of he he really got caught up in his own story in in terms of kind of the, the the course of events um what he'd sort of said in in his police interview didn't didn't quite match up with what he was telling um the magistrates and it didn't take the magistrates long to you know in their deliberations to to think about it and, and to find him guilty of um of of the two charges uh, he hasn't been um hasn't been sentenced yet he's been released on bail and he's due to be sentenced in the new year
1: it, it sounds a little bit like the um the library lesbian lover uh, <coughs> wrangle that we had uh, on the podcast last week uh, where it's like a a dispute that's kind of spilled into the courts um what was he what was the defendant um, charged with so the charge was making threats
2: to destroy property uh, times 2 because he threatened both of them with, with you know with the same thing uh, you know it, it's worth pointing out that it was it was only threats and there's no evidence at all that any cars were blown up in, in this scenario and and um that any kind of steps were taken to to try and blow up cars you, you'd imagine that sort of you know counter terrorism police would would probably get involved if you know if he was buy- doing things like buying fertilizer or whatever you know bomb making materials to blow up a car but you know the, these were simply threats and there's no real suggestion that he was going to carry them out but the fact that he made them and the fact that um the victim had 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 her car blown up in the past you know that caused her additional stress uh, distress I, sh- I should say and you know that kind of didn't really help his cause the fact that this was a threat that, that really carried a lot of weight um for the victim and it's also also worth saying as well that Mr. Aslam, Aslam the um, the second victim, he said that his car had also been blown up in 2016. Uh, no suggestion that Mr. Um, is was involved in that one, but it's just, yeah, really peculiar. It just seems like blowing up cars is the new, is kind of in vogue at the moment. I don't really know if, if you guys have heard anything about blowing up cars, but yeah, very peculiar.
1: Yeah, it's not something I've come across yet uh, in my time. Maybe <laughs> Maybe if I start covering the court Wickham way uh, or Cheshire way, it might uh, become more, more common. But um, do we I might put you on the spot here, George. Uh, do we know what mm-hmm. sort of sentence he's going to get? I honestly have no idea. So, the, so he has a criminal background. In
2: fact, he has been um, done before for um, criminal damage, um, destroying property. And that time he got one month custody. So I'd imagine that he will get more this time because the, the magistrates will not look favourably at that at his previous bad character but the, the fact that obviously no property was destroyed I think criminal damage charges you, you rarely see long um, sort of custodial sentences this is obviously aggravated because it's sort of a domestic um, sort of setting with this with the kind of ex-partner and you know obviously it was very distressing but I can't imagine that he'll get a long sentence but it, it will be really interesting to see what the sensing uh, come January
1: that's all we've got time for this week so thank you very much once again for listening that's goodbye from me Ollie goodbye goodbye from George thank you and Tom would also say goodbye but he's had to dash but uh, thank you for listening and make sure to tune in to the next one bye